gone way too far toward I. And so a lot of my recent work, a lot of my work in over my whole career is basically saying, look, this eye kick we're on is actually not good for us. It's bad for our health. I'll show you the evidence. It's bad for our health. It's bad for our kids. It's bad for equality. It's just really, really bad. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy, and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning, and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Robert Putnam was once described as the General Motors of American academia, a compliment delivered before the automaker was bailed out. He's produced nearly a dozen books on topics ranging from arms control to poverty. But these aren't just any books. They're both doorstoppers and conversation stoppers, intensely researched, peppered with insightful anecdotes and rigorously analysed data. I first got to know Bob when I took his social capital course in 2001 and spent a year working part-time as one of his research assistants. The team of half a dozen of us would analyse data or prepare literature reviews and then present them to the others who'd pick them apart. Uh, once Bob was satisfied we'd comprehensively tackled the narrow topic we'd been assigned, it'd be filed away as an input for him to use when writing the relevant section of his next book. I'd never seen anything quite like it in academia. When I returned to Australia, I wrote Disconnected, a much shorter version, Australia, but an Australian version of Bob Putnam's seminal book, Bowling Alone. Bob gave me thoughtful feedback on the draft, even although he'd by then moved on to other topics. He isn't just someone who writes about the ties that bind, he practices social capital too. Bob, thanks for appearing on the Good Life podcast today. It's great to be with you. Now, I'm interviewing you today as a politician, but it strikes me that uh, talking to politicians can't be that unusual for you, because uh, 50 years ago you did a PhD which involved interviewing 176 British and Italian members of parliament. What drew you to that topic? Well, um, who knows what deeper drives things drive any of us, but at the time I was trying to understand um, what made democracy possible? That is, what were the fundamental building blocks of, um, of democracy, of stable, effective democracy? And uh, there was a theory around, which I found actually quite persuasive, that although the values of ordinary citizens was, in, was an important variable, um, and economic development might be important and educational levels and so on might be important. The theory said that it's the values and the norms believed in and adhered to by practicing political leaders that was crucial. If you, if you had a political class who were maybe divided enormously over substantive things, should we have economic planning or should we not, should we have should homosexuality be legal or not? But and they differed violently on those things, but actually not violently. They dis they disagreed a lot, but they were able to contain that disagreement within broad broad boundaries of what of how what the rules of the game were. 
So that was things like free speech and and um, fundamental commitments to equality of opportunity and so on. And I thought at that time that Britain was a good example of a stable democracy and that Italy wasn't a good example of a stable democracy and that I might be able to see if there was anything to this theory if I talked to um, roughly 100 members of parliament in each of the two countries and then listened carefully. Um, so this was not a survey, really. It was like this, actually. I, sit, I sat down with a, with a tape recorder and, and uh, talked to them. Um, and, and the conversations were quite wide-ranging. And, and um, uh, then, because I'm a bit of a counter, we then later on, I and a research colleague of mine went through all the transcripts of all these interviews, um, which parenthetically turn out to be very valuable. Now, it turns out that the... Um, the uh, Churchill Library in Cambridge, England, wants the transcripts of these interviews because they're now historically relevant. For example, I had a really long, interesting, hour-long con uh, conversation with a guy named Enoch Powell, who was at that point pretty trivial, but historically was anything but trivial. He was was this first... before his Rivers of Blood speech? Just before his Rivers wow. of Blood speech. Um, and there he is, sitting in the, in the basement of the, of the House of Commons, um, and we were talking about these things. Well, I was, I mean, he seemed like a weird guy. But now, historically, that interview, that transcript, is actually extremely important because I had a quite private conversation with the guy who turned out to be historically important. Whether you like him or not is a different matter, of course. Um, so we analyzed all these interviews, and, and, um, uh, and it looked like, look, this was my doctoral dissertation, so it was, it, I wouldn't, want to have my scholarly reputation rise or fall on it, but it turns out now to be strangely relevant to our times because basically the, the, the research sort of was consistent with the theory that the crucial, the kind of saviors, the kind of guardians of modern democracy would be politicians. At least they, even across party lines, would insist on fair rules of the game. And if there's anything clear in my country now, and maybe in other countries, that isn't true any longer. I mean, I, I'm, I don't want to get too far into commenting on contemporary American politics, much less politics elsewhere, but actually the most frightening thing to me and to many Americans about our current crisis is how unwilling politicians have been to impose basic norms of fairness on, on one another, on, on themselves, on their own side. And that's actually why this is not the subject of your mm. of your interview but why i am unusually worried about our current times because what i honestly thought not just from my research i just thought well that barrier is never going to be broken they're all i mean maybe it's going to be broken in italy or or, or you know some strange place but it's not going to be bro broken in the anglo-american democracies and it is being broken and it's dangerous so I'm here for your uh, retirement conference uh, tomorrow, and, and I've been to plenty of these retirement conferences and festschrifts and so on, and, and typically they're a bit scattergun. It's colleagues and former students giving papers tangentially related to the retiree. But your wife, Rosemary, has organised tomorrow's in a very focused way. You've got superstar scholars, people from William Julius Wilson, Theta Scotchpole, Robert Axelrod, Jane Mansbridge, and then there's five panels on your on five big pieces of work uh, two level games making democracy work bowling alone american grace and our kids 
Um, so I wanted to go through each of those uh, and just touch on them very, very briefly. Um, the, the first, the uh, 1988 article in uh, International Organization, a uh, uh, highly reputed and rarely read foreign policy journal. Uh, am I right in thinking that that notion of two-level games had its genesis in your work with Zbigniew Brzezinski and the Carter White House? Yeah, and indeed, um, as I've been reflecting back on, on my work, I didn't spend a lot of time doing that until this weekend, um, it's become clear to me that... Um, I've been getting by with a lot of help from my friends and from a lot of unexpected sources. Some people are influenced by their environment. Some people are not so influenced. They're a little more independent. I'm very much influenced by my environment. And um, so after finishing this first period of my work that you alluded to when you talked about the, the Beliefs of Politicians book, and I did a couple of other books in that vein, I then thought, well, let me put myself in a different world and maybe I'll stumble on something there, and so I decided to go off to work for uh, a year or two on the staff of the National Security Council with, with Jimmy Carter. And um, the first thing that struck me while I was there um, was that most of our time on the staff of the National Security Council, this is at the White House, we're meeting in the, in the three steps away from the Oval Office, and I thought we'd be talking about great issues of, you know, international strategy and so on, but no, most of the time in our meetings we were talking about domestic American politics. We were talking about how could we get Senator Blowhard to support what he ought to anyhow. He's from Kansas, right? <laughs> I'm not saying where he's from, but we wanted to put a dam there. Oh, we didn't want to put a dam there. He wanted a dam there, and so we built a damn dam, not because it was justified in any mm. terms of policy terms, but because we were playing, we were playing domestic politics in order to achieve a broader goal, which is to get the, the Panama Canal Treaty ratified. And the Panama Canal Treaty was a perfectly sensible thing, but there were some perfectly sensible people in America who, for whatever reason, didn't want it, and so we had to play. It's as if we were playing two different games at the same time. We were negotiating across the diplomatic table with, you know, with, the, with the folks in Panama, but we were also negotiating behind us with a different... Um, table. And that kind of metaphor that we're constantly negotiating on two different tables struck me at that point. Mm. It, it struck me even more markedly, memorably, actually, in, later on in the period that I was working there. I had been asked to manage a process at the, within the U.S. government to come up with a, a stance for something called a special session on disarmament, which was a big disarmament negotiation going on in, in, uh, at the UN. And our main antagonists were the French. And so I was supposed to try to get our stance together and then negotiate it that with, with my French colleague who was mm -hmm. going to, you know, who had all these various sometimes crazy things he was doing. But we got along very well. And so after the whole thing was over and we reached a, a consensus and, we, and the speeches had been given at the UN... We, I then took him out to lunch at a restaurant in on uh, on Pennsylvania Avenue, and we were, you know, having lunch at this table, and I was describing to him my surprise that most of my my most difficult negotiation was actually with the State Department and with the Arms Control Agency, when it was the Pentagon, and I couldn't get them to agree to anything. And he said the same thing true for me, and we and there at this table, I began using this metaphor that. Behind each of us was another table that was had basically been invisible to the other person, but was actually 
more what I was doing, negotiating with these folks elsewhere in Washington, than I was worrying about what the folks in the Cador Say felt. And he had the same reaction exactly. And so yeah. that experience, the, the, the next stage of my career, actually, the next 10 years, was spent, first of all, trying to art, figure out the logic of, of what came to be called two-level games. Um, and we could go through that, but actually the, the, the metaphor is what counts. The metaphor is, it turns out there's a lot of math that you could work on and so on and make it use game theory to make it all very persuasive to mathematically inclined people. But the core idea, which is that the people sitting at the at an international diplomatic table mm -hmm. are actually simultaneously trying to do two different things. And there's sometimes they help, but sometimes they don't help. You know, on that. So, and then I ran into, while I was working on that project, a guy at, at um, I say a guy, he's now Sir Nicholas Bain. Uh, he wasn't then, he was a, a, a senior diplomat in, in uh, Whitehall. And he, ha he was interested in international summits, and I was too, because I thought maybe that'd be a place where we could see two-level games. And so then Nicholas and I started off just, we had lunch together because we were both at Chatham House. And then we got along very well, and, and now we're very old, very close friends, and we co-authored a book on, on the summits called Hanging Together, on the Western Economic Summits called Hanging Together. So I'm now trying to step a little bit away, but the, met, the core of that idea is if you just keep your eyes open to what's happening around you, and you ha you're lucky to have to, or to meet smart people, you can get along okay. And so I'm proud of that work, but it's not proud in the sense that I did it. I mean, it's, I got by with a little help from my friends. But you did take that risk of uh, stepping out of your ac academic career sure. at a relatively young age to uh, to get that slice of the practical world, and uh, uh, that that se that seems to have been a risk which for you paid off. It sure did. Actually, it wasn't it, that wasn't the way it quite appeared to me. I had I don't want to tell you the whole history of my life, but I had been turned on to public affairs in a very dramatic personal way during the during the John F. Kennedy period, which was um, sort of a couple of decades before the period we're now talking about. And I had, always, I had decided that I wanted to contribute in some way to public affairs, and I wasn't sure whether to do that as an academic or do that in government. And, um, and this period working at the National Security Council was an opportunity, basically, for me to kind of see what I like mm. working in politics or what I prefer to be in... in um, in uh, academics, and I decided I would be better off in academics for the following reason. I'll try to be brief about this, but this is actually important for people trying to understand these two different roles. You occupy both of them. I've occupied both of them seriatim. You occupy them both simultaneously. Um, one Monday morning, I went to the office and Big asked me to write a memo for the president, urging the president to do X. Um, I thought X was dumb. I didn't think it was immoral. I just thought it, it's, it's not worth my time. It's certainly not worth the time of the President of the United States. But even though, you know, I walked in every morning to the White House complex, um, I wasn't all that powerful, so I had to, I spent an inordinately long time, which was a week, I spent a week drafting that damn memo at the White House. A week is like ages. And it took me so long because I basically, I didn't think it was a good idea. Um, I repeat, it was not that I was being asked to do something immoral, it was just hmm. so, it seemed to be so trivial. And then I remembered very distinctly looking out my window that Friday when I finally got it finished and it was on the president's, in the, in the president's uh, briefcase as he walked out to the, 
to the helicopter um, on the south lawn and took off for Camp David. And you should, you might have thought, well, wow, I put into his briefcase the most powerful man in the world, and he's taking it off to Camp David, this memo saying do X. But I didn't think that. I thought, what a waste of a week. And I thought, as an academic, I never work on something that I fundamentally think is trivial. Because if I decide it's trivial, I just change and do something else. This is what some of your listeners will know, but some may not know. Academics basically have a very cushy, very attractive deal. We work really hard, but we decide what we want to work on. And what I learned at the White House is no matter how powerful you are, even if you're the President of the United States, you basically don't get to choose what you work on. You've got to try to persuade other people to do what they ought to do anyhow. That's when I decided I'm going to be better at I'm going to enjoy it more if I'm in charge of my own agenda rather than being, in, rather than having to respond to other people's agendas. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Uh, so I want to move on then to uh, to, to your next uh, passion project, uh, the uh, deep dive into Italian culture uh, yeah. for making democracy work. Which, uh, if I can sort of sum it up, sum up how I understand it, uh, the finding that. Uh, not only did Northern Italy have a higher preponderance of coral societies now than the South, uh, but that that was also true hundreds of years uh, b beforehand. Um, did you go to Italy because you were particularly interested in, in Northern and Southern Italy as a case study? Absolutely. Or was there also an aspect of, of just love, loving La, La Bella Paese? Um, that's a really good question. Um, that took me 25 years to do that study. For the first 24 of the 25 years, I completely misunderstood what I was doing. It was only at the very end of this that I suddenly figured it out. Um, and I won't go through the first 24 years except to say that I was accidentally in Rome doing some other project, and um, the Italian government fell, and for a long time, for two or three months, there was nothing I could do because the people I want to interview were just not in their offices. And so I was sitting there, and then sort of accidentally, they created a new set of regional governments that had unexpectedly, they created these new regional governments all across Italy. There had never been governments of that sort. Um, and now there were, and I thought, trying to figure out something to do with my time, well, suppose I start studying those things now, and then they develop for a while, and I'll follow them, and it'll be a little bit as if some political scientist had been around in uh, 1789 when the U.S. Congress was started, and but I'll be doing the interviews, so I'll be able to provide evidence for how it changed from 1789 to God knows when. Though that was the concept of the project, it, and I was doing interviews all over Italy, and, and, um, and I admit that it was fun, uh, that's an understatement, that every year for nearly 25 years, I had to go to Italy every, every summer and spend two or three weeks in Bologna and in Florence and in Rome and in Milan and um, all for reasons of, of research, you understand. Absolutely. Um, this is the uh, the tough life of an academic you were yeah. referring to earlier. <laughs> exactly. And, of course, it was a tax deduction because it was part of my work, not a... Anyway, um, so there were a lot of mixed motives there. Um, but I couldn't ever, it was, the, the findings were one by one interesting, but I couldn't figure out how to make them interesting to someone who wasn't already interested in the topic. A friend of mine, Bob Axelrod, actually, another, a longtime friend, said to me oh, at about year 20 or 22, Bob, until you can figure out why this project should be of interest to someone 
other than the three people in America who care about Italian local government, don't publish. And that seemed like good advice to me, except I couldn't for the life of me figure out why would anybody in the world, besides the three of us who studied Italian local government, care about it. And um, I'm, I'll, I'll try to make the story brief, but it's it may be relevant. So I was um, off in uh, in Oxford at Nuffield uh, College for a fall, for a term in, in one fall. I was trying to I was trying to work on this, but I still didn't have any really clear. I'd written a lot of stuff, but it didn't add up to anything. And Rosemary was, my wife, was still working at that point. She was teaching school, and she couldn't get off, so I was living by myself in college in a, in just a room across the quad from the rest of the college at Nuffield. And I couldn't sleep one night. I was, God knows what I was trying to figure out, how to make this, how, to, how can I make this, make sense out of this? And I thought, well, I was across the, across the, the, the quad there at, at Nuffield, and the library was there, and I thought, I'll go over and find some book, really boring book, and put myself to sleep, and I did, walked in. Um, there was a big, thick book, which turned out had just been published in the previous year or two, called Social Theory, and I thought, 400 pages of Social Theory, that's just the ticket. I'll read that, and it'll put me to sleep, and maybe something will happen. And I started reading it, and it turned out to be a book... Uh, by James Coleman called The Foundations of Social Theory. And there was a chapter in there on something, a concept I'd never heard of before, social capital. And I started reading this, and I had read a crucial part of the story, actually, is that by this point I knew a lot of game theory. And the logic of that chapter on social capital was rooted in game theory. So I was able to see, I don't want to say that it was a like, on the road, Paul on the road to Damascus, but it was a little bit like that. I right away could see that what James James Coleman was not writing about Italian local government in the slightest, but he was writing about the importance of social networks and why why that could have really positive effects. He called those networks, and so do I, social capital. And there's a sense, Andrew, in which by the before I went to sleep that night, I had seen essentially almost all the work that I would do in the next 25 or 30 years of my life. All the other books you're going to ask me about are about social capital in some way. And I walked into the library never having heard the term before, and I walked out seeing what an important idea this is. And then, of course, I didn't see the, I didn't actually know all the books I was going to write, but pursuing the idea um, came from there. So even that story... There's a lot in it that involves not me, but involves Bob Axelrod, for example. If Bob had not been beating up on me for 20 years to try to figure out, and if Bob and a couple of other people, Ken Shepsley and others, had not taught me a lot about game theory, my mind would not have been prepared when I walked into that library that night to perceive what otherwise would have been a soporific book. <laughs> and... Um, and But then, actually, the writing of the book about Italian... I had already written a lot about Italy... But it was. But then I finished having read that, and having and there was another part that was another part of the episode that is is maybe relevant here. Also, the same within within a couple of weeks of that encounter, I was another also was kind of bored, and Rosemary was not there, so I was wandering one late one night and went to Blackwell's bookstore, which is right down the Turl in in uh, Oxford, and there was a historical atlas lying on the table. And I was just idling through it. I sort of leafed through this historical atlas and came upon a map of patterns of, 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 of 
it's not right to call them democracy, but patterns of, of social connection and civicness in Italy in, uh, in the 15, 14th and 15th centuries. And I looked at that. I'm pretty good at recognizing patterns, but anybody would have seen. That map in that historical atlas was identical to the map that I had myself drawn about places that were strong and weak in, in Italy, places where you could get your, your mail answered from the local government in 1970. Yes. And I thought, how likely is it that that's an accident, right? And that's what I first began to see. There are these differences. These differences in social capital are extremely deep. Mm. And that's the part, of the, the part of the book that you remember is actually a direct linear descendant of that rainy afternoon when I saw those two maps in, in Oxford. Anyway, that's that story. They're wonderful tales of uh, serendipity. So then you move from looking at the... Uh, stasis in social capital in Italy to looking at the changes in social capital right. in the United States, uh, first through, uh, through through an article for the Journal of Democracy and then through the uh, uh, through Bowling Alone, which comes out in 2000, still, I think, the book for which you would be uh, best, best known. Uh, did you know that uh, Bowling Alone was going to be something big as you were working on it in the years <laughs> leading up? No, absolutely not. Um, I'll tell the, 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 the connective tissue there very briefly. Um, I came back from Oxford and metaphorically from Italy, having persuaded myself that I now did understand something about the roots of democracy, and they turned out to be quite deep historically. And, um, and then I was just, as an American citizen, I was worried about what was happening to American democracy. Mm. Now, that seems like, how could people not be worried about American democracy? But at the time, it was slightly controversial, countercultural. This is the immediate aftermath of the fall of the Berlin Wall, and people it was an era of triumphalism and so on. But I still felt that um, there had been a collapse in the effectiveness of American democracy. Certainly, if you ask Americans when I was growing up, would you say you can trust the government to do the right thing? When I was growing up in the 50s, that, the answer to that question was, um, I've forgotten, 75% people saying, yes, you could trust the government. And by the time I was this, I, I returned now from Oxford in Italy, mm. that figure is about 25%. So there's been a huge change basically since I personally started to vote. Um, when, I, when I started to vote, everything was great, and then I started to vote and the place fell apart. <laughs> and so I was like a good social scientist. I was wondering, well, what could explain that besides my personal agency? And I, um, and I, because of the way things were happening at the time, I said to myself, well, I wonder whether there's any connection between what I've been studying in Italy, namely social capital, not change, but differences in social capital, and what I'm worried about as a citizen, namely that American democracy has been falling apart, I wonder, could it possibly be that there has been some change in American social connections, social capital, social networks over this period? And initially that was a quite random kind of thing. I saw a newspaper story that the parent-teacher organizations in, in, in Lexington, Mass, where I lived, were having trouble getting members to come, and I thought, hmm, that's interesting. And... You know, it was one of these strings. You kept pulling the string, and um, and so I had no, I had no idea when I started that, not even a vague hunch as to what what I later on discovered, which is basically, it's true that it all began when I started to vote. But what had happened was, for reasons that we then spent a lot of time trying to figure out, all sorts of social connections in America basically had collapsed. 
in the 30 or 40 years between 1965 and, and 2000. And um, so I stumbled, again, blindly stumbled onto what I think now was a, a big deal. And, and um, so then I went off and gave a, a talk in, in um, a very obscure academic talk in Sweden and um, I had to think of a title for it, and, and a friend of mine here at the Kennedy School, Jack Donahue, had learned a little bit about the, some of the evidence I was finding, and one of the evidence, some, of the, some of the evidence was that people were no longer going bowling in leagues as much. He said, so you're finding that people are bowling alone, he said. I remember when he said that to me. It was no phrase at all, but I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not very creative, but I can hear a good idea when I, I can know a good idea when I hear it. And I thought, oh, I had a nice title for this obscure paper that I'm going to give. So I gave the paper and some even more obscure academic journal, Journal of Democracy, said, would you publish that? And I said, why not? And then it was like the world blew up on me. Um, it was picked up by a couple of, at the time, the leading political commentators in America, George Will and, and uh, on, the on the right, and an equally famous David Broder, a, a famous uh, progressive commentator. And both of them said it's, it's terrific, this book, this article is terrific. And then from that, basically, the, within two weeks of that, the White House called me to say, would I come to Camp David to talk with the president and his cabinet about this? Two weeks later, Rosemary and I were featured in People magazine. I mean, we're just ordinary folks, right? They're, but, um, and I went from one call from a journalist every year to one call from a journalist every hour. And um, I, I don't want to sound like I'm a, I want to sound falsely like, like I'm a, you know, naive hick from the sticks, but because uh, now I know what was happening, but I didn't know what was happening at the time. And it was like, what in the world is going on, and how do what do I do about this? And I've then, you know, a lot of things you know, you probably have noticed this too, when you become even modestly famous, then, you know, you're going to be subject to more criticism. You should be, of course you should be, but you, it's not what an ordinary academic with one journalist call a year deals with. And um, and then it began, to, then I suddenly realized, gosh, I hope I'm right about this. And I had had decent evidence, and but... You know, it wasn't perfect evidence, and a lot of people quickly reminded me that I didn't have perfect evidence for this article. And then, I, so I spent three or four years checking to see could I be wrong here. It was actually personally deeply depressing period because I thought I am, I have made some dumb mistake here, and I'm, the whole world is watching me plummet. Um, but it turned out I was right, actually. And, and the more we investigated other data set, the more it turned out I was really right. I was more right than I thought. I'm sounding now um, falsely. Uh, um, praising myself, it's not. It's not like I'm saying, "Isn't it wonderful?" I was right. I'm saying, you cannot imagine how surprising it was to me to go through these big sweeps of, you know, being in People magazine and the president calling me to figuring that the whole world understands that I'm just that I'm a complete fool to discovering actually I'm not such a fool and I was basically right. And that's so. A lot of things flowed from that. But that's the backstory, so to speak, of the of the article. And then, following the uh, the uh, the book coming out and Bowling Alone coming out, uh, you're uh, very much a, a, pu a public star as well as being 
at the uh, at the the apex of, uh, of of the academic tree, you then begin working on quite a controversial topic: the interplay between social capital and ethnic diversity, right. um, and that's something which uh, you were working on as as, as early as uh, as, as two thousand. Uh, but it wasn't until you received the Johann Skite Prize, the Nobel Prize for uh, equivalent for political scientists in uh, 2006 that you finally uh, and, and announced those findings. And, and you were criticised by one journalist who said um, academics aren't supposed to withhold negative data until they can suggest antidotes to their findings. But do you still think it was right to hold back on those controversial findings until you'd settled in your own mind how to how, how to how to put the problem right? Actually, you're right about that journalist's comments, but you're wrong about what he meant by it. And he would, if he were here, he'd correct you. Um, That's John Leo we're talking, talking about. Yes, yeah. and uh, in the in the in the Financial Times, and um, he had he had come to a talk I gave on the on these findings. Uh, in Manchester, and as I was walking up to the stage, he said, um, how long have you been working on this project? And I said, I've been working then probably three or four years, and he said, why are you only now talking about it? And I said, well, I wanted to be sure I had the facts right, because if I'm going to go out and say something seriously that has uh, not just public implications, but controversial implications, I wanted to be sure I kind of knew what I was saying. And so he took away from that I'm, I'm fixated on what he said only because you've quoted it back. And what he said, if you go back to see, see what he, he quoted me as saying, I withheld publication until I had a politically correct answer. That's what, if you read what he said, that's what he said. And that criticism of his was not that I'd published, but that I'd withheld publication. According to him, because of political correctness, I had withheld publication until I could come up with some politically correct solution to the problem, which wasn't true. I mean, it was false. It was factually false. And he later on had to retract that part of it because actually, as soon as I found the findings, we, I mean, they were part of a larger study and we had made a public, we had made a press release and I'd issued statements, public statements and spoken to public audiences about these findings. So I was certainly not covering up what I admit was a finding that was a surprise to me and not pleasant. We should maybe tell your listeners the backstory. The backstory is, um, I had gotten into this because we had done a big national survey of places that had high social capital and had low social capital, had high trust and so on, and low trust. And what we'd found was that the places in America that were most trusting were also the places that were most homogeneous, the ethnically homogeneous. And so just descriptively, it looked like the more ethnically diverse a community or a neighborhood the lower the social trust and lower social capital. And so that was the basic finding. And that finding, basic finding, we, we, we came to understand it differently, but the basic finding, contrary to the claim of the right, um, was not withheld for political correctness. And the reason, only reason I go at such great length is the larger argument was this. And the larger argument at the time that I, all along, this was the larger argument, that in the short run, that, that A, Diversity is great. It's really great. It has many advantages. Um, uh, 
immigrant countries like ours or yours, the, the most, most of our Nobel Prize winners in America are immigrants, not native-born folks. Most of our leading artists are immigrants or children of immigrants, not native folks. Diverse groups are more productive, not less productive. So it's clear there are big advantages. It's also clear from our work, I thought, and some other people's work, that in the short run, doing diversity is difficult. That is to say, it's not like you introduce a whole lot of people from all over the world in different religions and so on, they all suddenly begin hugging each other. They don't. There's, there's, in the short run, there's a collapse, a, a fall in social trust, and social not only social trust, but, but social connectedness. As I said, summarizing those part of my findings, diversity brings out the turtle in all of us. All of us hunker down when we're in the presence of new diversity. But, I said, the third, so first point is diversity is good. I mean, diversity has big advantages. Second point, it's not easy in the short run. And the third point is, but you can do it in the long run. Successful, successful immigrant societies have always learned how to manage diversity, not by becoming the same old monocolor places they once were, but rather by developing a new sense of us, developing a more encompassing sense of we. So it's not that when Italian-Americans or Jewish-Americans or whatever came to America, they had to stop being Italian. We had to get used to Italians being part of America. And so our cuisine is much better. And because of the arrival of the Jews, our humor is, humor is way better. Americans historically did not do good on humor. But when you add all those, uh, those Jewish humorists, I'm not making this up, actually. We suddenly become, America's really, you know, dominate the world, in, at least in filmed humor. And, and that wasn't because we had them, the, the, the Jews had to stop being funny before they counted as real Americans. We added funniness to our repertoire of traits or, you know, it, it, I, there's examples here are so frequent and obvious that I always get a little frustrated that I have to explain to people. It's not that you get past the, the short-run effects of diversity by having those people become like us. It's creating a new sense of us. With an, with a, and um, so that argument has that, and, and that's what I said, and that's, and that's what I have stuck to all the time throughout the controversy. There's been two kinds of countries, controversies, one led by the left and one led by the right, actually. The left doesn't like the middle point I made about doing diversity is difficult because they want to say it's not difficult. And the right doesn't like the thing I said at the end, which is that you, you can work it out and it's, you're better off afterwards. So the right wing in American politics, and I'm not just casting aspersions here, David Duke, the head of the Ku Klux Klan, had me on his webpage saying Harvard professor finally says diversity is bad which is not what I said, but when I made clear that that is not what I said, then I became the target of all the right-wingers. And this, the whole case actually went to the Supreme Court, for goodness sakes, and I had to file a brief in the Supreme Court. Personally, Bob Putnam filed a brief in the Supreme Court saying these right-wingers who are trying to oppose immigration are now knowingly misinterpreting me because they're cherry-picking out the one part of that argument they like and denying the other part. And that was the, the most disturbing criticism of me because it, it had me in the wrong part of the universe, basically. There's been less criticism, but somewhat more criticism from some on the left who said that 
maybe I had misstated even the short-run problems. Maybe I had somehow made up the short-run problems. And then if you, if, you do the, if you do the math right, it turns out that instantly when strange people arrive next door, you go over, everybody goes over and hugs them. And, and um, so they, that line of argument would have been that I got wrong the middle of these two points. As it turns out now, there now have been more than 100 replications of that work all over the Well, there's been stuff done on this in, in Australia. There's been stuff done in Britain, in New Zealand. I mean, every place in the world, there's now been studies saying, is Putnam right or wrong? My own replication has indeed been replicated for Australia. <laughs> and the, the, there's now, it's, it's great. This is the way science is supposed to work, exactly the way. I'm not, I never have for a second thought that the way science works is I discover the truth and everybody bows down. That, that's not how science works. Science works, I say what I think, and then somebody else says, yeah, but you got this wrong. And then other people say, yeah, but maybe he didn't get that wrong. And so now we're far enough along in this process that there's just about to be published a review of the 150 studies that have been done, which, you know, you can read it yourself, other people will, but as I read it and as they say it, Putnam is basically right about in the short run diversity is bad. Um, so it was, I don't like being criticized any more than anybody does. Maybe politicians like being criticized, but I doubt it. Certainly our current president does not like being criticized, and I'm not quite in that league. Um, so I didn't like being criticized, but I didn't think any of it. I thought it was unfair for people knowingly to distort my argument, which is what the left, mm. the right wing did. But the academic criticism, that goes with the turf. So you then moved to another fascinating aspect of American life, and your, uh, your book was David Campbell, uh, American Grace. Uh, it's a 700-page book published in 2012 and, and reflects uh, one of the things that strikes me as uh, most interesting as an Australian coming here. Uh, if you look at the end of World War II, a third of people in both our countries attended church on a weekly basis. Now it's down to only about one in eight Australians, but it's still only a little under a third here, here in the United States. And uh, as you point out, Americans surpass Iranians in their uh, zeal for religious attendance. Um, to what extent was your interest in, in the topic of religiosity and religious tolerance uh, grounded in your own fascinating religious story, your, your yeah. conversion from Methodism to Judaism, right. uh, a path not many others travel? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, there, as as with all works, certainly with my, all of my works, there's a there's a personal backstory and there's a academic backstory. The academic backstory, to begin there, is that as a rough rule of thumb, half of all social capital in America is religious. Half of all volunteering is religious. Half of all philanthropy is religious. Half of all group memberships in America are religious. If you add up all the, you know, the prayer groups and the and the church groups and so on, and you add up all the bowling leagues and the rotary clubs and the, you know, United, I mean, all the other groups that Americans are forming, those are the same height. So I've always understood that religion was a, an important element in America's social capital national accounts, if I can put it that way. So I wanted to understand more about it. Moreover, it seemed like a case in which maybe this would be sort of bad social capital. That is, it was connecting people, but it was it was all bonding, connecting with people like themselves, and it was it was not about bridging, and therefore it, um, as some uh, of the, of the so-called new atheists claimed, um, religion destroys everything. That's a, a common view. And I didn't think that was true, but I also think 
because I, I, I thought there were really good things that religion did, but I also think there were bad things, and I tried to understand how's what's the mix between the the pro-social and the anti-social features of religion. And we had an opportunity to do a very large national, quite unusually large and repeated national survey, so we had some good evidence on both the ways in which religion was supportive and the ways in which it was not. And America, in, historic, in world terms, America is odd because we're very diverse religiously um, and, we're, and we take religion seriously but we're surprisingly tolerant, and usually, if you put together diversity and religiosity, you get intolerance. And the question was, how did? I mean, you, usually you get Baghdad or Beirut or Belfast or you know Bombay or some awful civic fights over religion, and we have we have fights over religion, but we they sort of don't hmm. get out of hand. And that was the that's the academic puzzle. The personal thing was because I had I've been raised as an active um, I don't want to say devout, but I was certainly active Methodist and went off to college and um, happened to encounter a really smart, wonderful co-ed, we called him in those days. We shared interest in politics. We differed on politics because I was a Republican then and she was a Democrat. And we differed on religion. And I quickly solved the first discontinuity because I converted to being a Democrat and, and, and wholeheartedly, enthusiastically, <laughs> the Republican scales fell away from my eyes. But converting out of a faith that I basically had been practicing for, for all my life was not so simple, so we spent a lot of time going back and forth over that. And at the time, it was extremely countercultural. Extreme, everybody on both sides said, Bob and Rosemary, you're wonderful people, but this is, it just never works if you have interfaith marriages. And, um, I mean, and, and indeed, both her family and my family, they loved us, and that's the saving grace here. But they were sure this was a life-altering mistake we were making. Fifty-five years later, so far so good. We're doing fine. We've got we've got two kids and seven grandchildren, and and um, I converted to Judaism, and um, both of my kids were therefore were were raised as Jews, and both of them married non-Jews. But then one of their spouses, my daughter-in-law, converted to Judaism ten years later, and all my kids are being raised as um, they, they're all being bar mitzvahed. So I say to Rosemary, she got, in, in Judaism, there's a certain minimum number required to hold a religious service called a minion. You have to have 10 Jews to form a minion. From one person, namely Rosemary, we have, we have a minion of our own that we produce. <laughs> so it's been great for, as a personal experience, but it also, it also made me much more sensitive to what turned out to be important in the book, actually. That is, that these networks of interfaith connections, especially marriage, but even just knowing somebody of a different faith, Americans do have lots of friends and increasingly lots of relatives who are in some other faith. We sometimes refer to Aunt Susan. Aunt Susan is somebody, you know, she's a wonderful human being. Aunt Susan is for sure going to heaven. She is. If anyone's going to heaven, if there is a heaven, Anne Susan isn't going to be there because she's the person who always remembers birthdays and who goes out of her way to take care of sick cats. And she's just a wonderful human being. Unfortunately, Anne Susan is of a different faith than me, and I know when I, you know, if I'm if I'm a believer, she's a nice, maybe a nice person, but she's not going to go to heaven. And but you can see lots of ordinary Americans, including my own aunts, saying. And and my and my 
not just my own aunts, but my own nephews and, and nieces saying, well, you know, Aunt Susan, she's pretty nice, and maybe she is going to go to heaven, despite the fact that she worships at the wrong altar. So that's what it felt like in personal life, and it turned out once we did all the research, that's really true. That's the big story of that book is it turns out that the secret of American success, the reason that we're able to tolerate such diversity is we kind of get connected with people from other faiths in a way that doesn't happen in Northern Ireland, at least hasn't yet, maybe it will, that doesn't happen in, in the Middle East, and maybe it will, but it doesn't. And in America, those per interpersonal ties across religious lines enable us, indeed in some sense, force us to be more tolerant. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Uh, your most recent book, 2015, is Our Kids, uh, which is a book, as I take it, about inequality, but it's grounded in the story of uh, the uh, Lake Erie city of Port Clinton, where you, uh, you grew up and how it's changed over your lifetime. Uh, but it doesn't just talk about uh, inequality through the lens of, of money. It also talks about the challenge of parenting. And uh, uh, there's, there's a, a part of it that I think makes me as a progressive feel quite un uncomfortable. Uh, when you look at the parents of poor, the poor children pro from your child, childhood who are profiled, um, eight out of eight of those parents are there as the children grew up. Among the millennial kids, it's something like two out of 12. Um, did that delving into the impact of family structure on poverty make you uncomfortable as you were writing the book? No. Um, and actually, although if we'd been talking here at this place, at the, at the Kennedy School, when you were last here, I mean, when you were here as a student, um, uh, there would have been an ideological cast to the issue um, is the problem about, about um, poverty because of economic structure, or is it a problem about family structure? And, the, and that's, that's been debated ideologically, and still is debated ideologically, publicly. But actually, among specialists now, there's very little disagreement on two points. One, that family does matter. And basically, the argument that progressives, like you and me, had um, 15, 20 years ago that to talk about family was to enter the territory of the enemy, that is to take on board something, family values, that only conservatives talked about. Um, that's not true now, and it's not it's virtually not true of anybody on the left, much less on the right. No, almost nobody would. You look at the evidence, and it's just easier for two parents to raise a kid than for one parent to raise a kid. I don't care whether they're legally married or they're they're cohabiting or they're even. I don't care whether they're different genders. It's having two adults, two loving adults, taking care of kids is just easier. And so the problem is not to blame single moms. That's the most, it seems like the next step is, okay, all these women are having kids without benefit of marriage. It's their fault. That is wrong. But that single, that the collapse of the working class family, which is not unique to the United States, actually, um, is relevant to the growth of this class gap in America, um, 
I think that's no longer seriously debated by scholars. It's obviously still debated in the public arena, but in, among scholars of both the left and right, it's not. And secondly, if you ask, well, where did that come from? Where did the breakup of the family, working class family, come from? Most people, not everybody, but most people would say, well, it's a bit of the, of the economic change, the fact that the working class adults have taken it on the chin for the last 30 years. There have been, I mean, and you know the data on this as well as I do, in the U.S. and actually many other places, the working class has had a really awful 30 years in which they've not shared at all in the, in the prosperity of the country. And that for sure is relevant to their ability to maintain stable family relations. So, and then on the other hand, the other, the other side of this argument, but it's a much more narrowly bounded argument, would say, yeah, but it's not just poverty, because we used to have poverty and not have the, this high rate of, 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 of familiness in the working class. We used to have stable, but still poor working class families. And that leads to the thought that, well, maybe something else has happened too. For example, between 19, the level of poverty in the United States between 19... 32 and 1942 or 41 before the before the war that is during the Great Depression enormous poverty heavily concentrated on the working class and the rate of um, of uh, births out of wedlock did not change one whit even though there had been a collapse of the economics and why was that because the birth rate went down too basically people acted then working class people acted then not there wasn't poverty, but the sort of moral rule was no license, no kids. And even though birth control was actually harder then, both births and weddings went down. And what that implies was that was a period in which there was poverty and it did have an effect on marriages, but it didn't follow through onto births because people had a different moral set. And so I'm trying to explain why I would say most, even most progressive scholars now would say, yes, the absence of two parents, that is the collapse of the working class family, is part of the story. It does help explain why the opportunities open to working class kids now are way lower than the opportunities open to rich kids, but not, but not because they chose the wrong parents, but because they they're now stuck with a set of parents who are, that's not right, I don't want to say stuck with, but their parents now are very less likely to be married, and therefore they're less likely to have two parents. And why do they are less likely to have two parents? Because, partly for economic reasons and partly for cultural reasons. So I knew that that was basically true, and our evidence showed that that's true. And one of the things that's striking, actually, about both the reaction to that book and to the big public debate about equality of opportunity in America is along, along some dimensions there's, of, of politics, there's basic factual disagreement. It's like the two sides are living in different worlds. In this area, which is crucial, it's, it's equality of opportunity, the core value of America, there actually isn't a ton of disagreement about the facts namely the growing gap between rich kids and poor kids, or even the explanation for the facts. Among the specialists, there's not. But the, but the political elite, and here I would not be even-handed, the Republican elite, they know the facts, and they've been ignoring the facts. And I mean, I, that's, I know I'm accusing them of 
you know, a year ago I would not have said this. I have talked with Paul Ryan about this issue. And there's nothing I've not said that I've said to you that he says is wrong. He just doesn't. He even says privately, yeah, we've got to do something to help these kids. And of course we've got to do something to help their parents economically. That privately he'll say that, but he, his behavior has been completely inconsistent with that. And so now I've suddenly tiptoed into this mess of American politics now. And I know I'm sounding like a rabid Democrat, but I'm, it's the same me all along. All along I've been trying to be a kind of a purple person, that is, see things from the right and from the left. We call it red and blue in this crazy backward notion, because red for us means conservative, mm. or we know in the real world red means liberal. But um, I've tried to be kind of purple, and most of these problems I think are purple problems, and I've spoken easily my whole career, easily to Democrats and Democratic and Republican leaders, but now the Republican Party is just... And we know the reason, the arrival of this bizarre person at the top of the Republican Party has just gone off the deep end. And all you can, all we can hope, and I, by we I mean here Americans, I don't just mean Democrats, is that in the next election people will recognize the, the error of their ways. I think this actually is happening. I know this is not a current events thing, and so this may be played after the election of November 2018, and maybe I'll be shown to be a complete fool as a predictor, but I think it's likely, actually, that the American public is decent enough that a lot of people will say, this is a hell of a way to run a country. Not left or right, but just where truth doesn't matter, you can't, how could you run a country in which truth doesn't matter? So I think, I admit this is now a little more based on faith in ordinary Americans than it is on facts. I think I think we'll come out okay, but I sure wish we hadn't had this detour. So I want to draw the conversation to a close, just just with a a, a couple of observations. One on your the uh, the cycle of your career. Uh, there's this notion of uh, of creatives that they come in two types: those who are grounded in a, a single big idea, who bloom in their early twenties, and those who draw their work from the world, who tend to bloom late. And so, uh, in novels, you think of uh, uh, Joyce as an early bloomer, Dickens as a, as, as a character-driven late bloomer, Picasso is driven by single ideas, blooming early, Matisse coming, coming later. Your best-cited work, Bowling Alone, is published when you're 59, uh, and and in, indeed uh, your productivity, if anything, seems to be uh, seems to be increasing. Um, what does it mean to be uh, a late uh, a late late bloomer, uh, as uh, in terms of how you see yourself and see, see your career? Yeah. Um, that's a good question, actually. I've not, surprisingly, maybe I haven't asked myself that question exactly. Because from inside, of course, it seems that you're the same you, Jen, and turning out books, and people either like them or they don't like them. Um, so from inside, you're, you you want to say, well, it depends upon the fit between the ideas that I've had and what the demand out there in the world was for those ideas. And there's no doubt that Bowling Alone and Social Capital became really popular because it happened to be appearing at a, at the time of the so-called third way, the incipient communitarianism of of uh, Bill Clinton, and then later Barack Obama and and Tony Blair, and um, so that ideas were in the air, 
and I just happened to be the guy who was articulating these ideas. If I'd articulated the same ideas, you know, two decades earlier, it would have been in the teeth of Reaganism, and that would not have fly, uh, flown. And if I'd, if I'd waited another 20 years, not that I was trying to wait, but if I had, you know, the world would have moved on. So a lot, a large, it seems from inside out as though I'm just inside there chugging out ideas, and sometimes they have resonance with the world. Um, but also seen from inside, I can see a lot of ways in which my work was building on itself. Um, and there's not a core concept, or if there is, it's social capital. That appears much later in the story, as you, as you correctly say. I'm in my 50s before I even heard of that idea. And I didn't come up with it myself, I just used it, popularized it maybe. Um, but it is true that throughout my career I've been very interested in community. My very first article, um, published when I, in my first semester as a graduate student, uh, I mean, written when I was in first semester of a graduate student, is still, so that's now um, more than 50 years old, is still one of the most cited of my pieces. And it's called Political Attitudes in the Local Community, because I was, at some deeper level, I was driven by worrying about the community. At some deeper, I mean, I, this is the, you know, the, you know, psychobabble, I suppose, but at some deeper level, I think a lot of my career was driven by Growing up in a place that had objective, we know this now, had very high social capital. I happened to be growing up in a period in a period in a place, no thanks to me, which there was an extremely high level of trust and reciprocity and connecting and so on, the fifties in middle America. And um, therefore I was I noticed when that that reality of community began to, to weaken, and not much of my career has been trying to say to other folks, look. Look, and, and it has the form of, it takes the form of, it seems to take the form of a kind of nostalgia for a, a world that we could never recreate. And, and what I've been trying to say louder and louder is, no, no, it, it's true that it was like that then, and it's true that we've been on this downer, but it doesn't have to be, and we could turn it around, actually. And, and here are some ideas. I'm, I'm now writing a last book, which tries to put this, all of these works, in a larger historical perspective and talk about the relative emphasis on we, which was high then, and the relative emphasis on I, which was low then and is high now, and uh, the book is going to argue, I'm not going to summarize this new book yet for you now because I'm not yet finished it, but the basic idea is for the first half of the 20th century we were moving from an I society to a we society. Things were getting better. And then I show up accidentally and I somehow trigger a reversal <laughs> of this and for the last 50 years, we've been moving more and more from a we society to an I society. Now, I'm not trying to say that all good is we. There are bad things about we. There's conformity, conformity and conformism and maybe the tyranny of the majority and all that. So that it's not like we, good, I, bad. But for sure, we've gone way too far toward I. And so a lot of my recent work, a lot of my work in over my whole career is basically saying, look, this eye kick we're on is actually not good for us. It's bad for our health. I'll show you the evidence. It's bad for our health. It's bad for our kids. It's bad for equality. It's just really, really bad. 
And therefore, I say, let's look at the time which was 100 years ago, the, the Gilded Age, which was very much like this age, and we can see now historically that that was a turning point. I don't think mean that in the progressive era everything became perfect. It didn't. But we'd been on a, an eye kick for a long yes. time, and we turned a corner, and then the next 60 years we spent going in a, in a wee direction. And all I'm trying to say is let's look back and see what did they do so that the future is not... I don't want to go back to the 50s, but I don't want to be stuck in, the, in our current decade, which is awful. A couple of rapid-fire final questions. What advice would you give to your teenage self? I, I think this is going to sound like a preacher's thing. I think I would... But the thing, I look back at my teenage self, maybe all teenagers like this, I thought basically I was in charge of my life. I was doing everything. I was working hard to get you know, good grades and, and to play on the football team and all these things. And now, in retrospect, I can see... What self-delusions. I was entirely being helped along and pushed along and influenced along by these social influences, and I didn't even realize it. And I don't know that I would have behaved any differently, but I would have been a lot more thankful if than I was at the time. When are you most happy? Yeah, well, that's a little unfair. It's because I've, I've got a terrific family, actually. Really terrific. I mean, I married my college sweetheart, and we're still loving each other more than it sounds. I know this sounds like suddenly this is a sob story. I mean, you're turning into people turn on the wrong dial, and they ended up in the middle of some, you know, soap opera or something. But we had a really, really, really good life uh, in all ways. We've been successful professionally. Both of us have been successful professionally. We both actually are more in love now than we were then, 50 years ago. We've got great kids who are doing wonderful things, and and Actually, are even more successful. We've been pretty successful. They're even more successful, and our grandchildren don't get me started. And so, we don't have a picture here. We got a picture someplace of, of Rosemary and me and our seven grandchildren sitting in the English countryside, um, Devonshire, celebrating our fiftieth fiftieth anniversary, and we look like. Lords of the Manor. I mean, we look like, and and I look at that picture. And I think, talk about happiness. That's bliss. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? Well, I try to get a little out of myself because I think my natural state is being slightly depressed and disappointed in what I've achieved. I've had I've had serious episodes of depression in my life, actually. Um, and so I, Rosemary's important in that context because she, when I'm feeling down, she kind of pips me up. And when I'm feeling up, she reminds me to call my mother or my grandchildren. And that's really what I need that keeps me healthy. And then I, I don't drug as much as you do or as I did when I was your age, but I still work out every, I pump iron every couple of times a week. And. So I'm really lucky. I mean, it, look, it's a lot of this is genes and so on. I, I don't want to make it sound like humans are just chips floating on the ocean, brought hither and yon by, by their social and physical environment. But the older you get, the more you realize, gosh, I am so damn lucky. I, I ended up in this really nice state, and I didn't do anything right. I just was lucky. 
The time at uh, your writing uh, cabin in Frost Pond yeah. uh, sounds like it's uh, it's pretty important for your mental well-being too. Yeah, it is, and it's funny. Of course, I get teased by my family endlessly. Um, I somehow got in the habit of writing. I can't write here in the Kennedy School because there's just too many things happening all the time. So when I really want to write, I go up to the this cabin in the woods. Actually, it's, it's not just a cabin. It's a nice house in the woods on a pond with the mountains in the background. And um, and I write about how important connection with other people is. I've written that about the same sentence for 25 years, really important to connect with other people. But in doing that, I go to where I cannot see. Another, there's not another human being within a mile of me except Rosemary if he's there. You're in Henry David Thoreau uh, space. <laughs> yeah, and I can see. Uh, who, are my, who are my friends when I'm up there? Well, it's the bear and the moose and the deer and the raccoons and the porcupines and the... Yeah. Go figure. And finally, uh, Bob, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Honestly, I think my wife. Um, you know Rosemary, although you don't know her very well. Um, and we're different people different people. Um, she's a doer, so all those things that I preach about doing, she actually does. She's She volunteers in six different organizations and worries about kids and she worries about our own grandchildren and she's, she's almost always doing what I preach we should all be doing, but actually I don't do. And um, yeah, and I'm she has on, on our wall in, our, in the kitchen up in Frost Pond in, in New Hampshire, there's a saying, um, when you're 100 years gone, no one is going to ask, no one's going to care what you wrote or how much your money, your bank account was. They're going to care whether you did things for kids. I'm sorry. It's really emotional for me because that's true. That's absolutely morally rock true. I'm lucky to have been around her. It's a beautiful spot to wait to close. Uh, Robert Putnam, uh, social capitalist extraordinaire, thanks for taking the chance to speak on the Good Life podcast today. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback. So please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.